For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this evening is Evangelical Humiliation. Evangelical Humiliation or Gospel Humility. What is Gospel Humility? What do I mean by that term? Gospel Humility is a component of saving faith. It's a piece of what we call saving faith, a necessary piece. Let me read this to you from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 72, and I've updated it a little bit to make sense. What is justifying faith? Justifying faith is a saving grace put into a sinner's heart by the spirit and word of God. Listen very carefully. By this faith, the sinner is convinced of his sin and misery. And by this faith, the sinner is convinced of his complete inability to recover himself out of his lost condition. I'll read it one more time. This is what gospel humility, what evangelical humiliation is. By this faith, the sinner is convinced of his sin and misery. And by this faith, the sinner is convinced of his complete inability to recover himself out of his lost condition. And this faith is not only agreeing with the truth of the gospel, but true faith receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness for forgiveness of sin and so that he can be accepted and considered righteous in the sight of God for salvation. That's justifying faith. So, gospel humility, what I mean by that term, is that it is a component or a piece of saving faith, which is essentially a despair in the ability of anything other than Jesus Christ to save us. And it is everywhere in scripture assumed to be absolutely necessary for salvation. James chapter four. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a soteriological context. It's talking about giving grace. God gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here it is. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So, James, you're telling me that a Christian is a miserable morning, weeping kind of person? Well, what kind of laughter should be turned into mourning? What kind of joy should be traded for gloom? There is a kind of self-happiness. There is a kind of me-derived joy, which is to be rejected if you were to receive a Christ happiness. If you were to receive a Christ-derived joy. In other words, it is the express testimony of Scripture that before someone can receive the hope of the gospel, they must be convinced of the hopelessness of everything else, themselves included. Before you can find hope in Christ, you must despair in yourself. What is the basis of my salvation? Christ and no other 
Proverbs is true, therefore, when it says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. With that said, let us proceed to our text. Look with me at Luke chapter 18. And I have subdivided this parable into four sections. Section number one, the audience of the parable. Point two, the self-exaltation of the Pharisee. Point number three, the evangelical humiliation of the tax collector. And point number four, the message of the parable. Point number one, the audience of the parable. Look at Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. Now he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised everyone else. I want you to notice two things with me. First, the point of verse 9 is to introduce the audience of the parable. It says, he spoke this parable to some who... So he's introducing the kind of person that he's speaking the parable to, right? Second, the audience is described by two characteristics. Those who trust in themselves for righteousness and those who view others with contempt. And these characteristics go hand in hand, don't they? No one compares himself with God and finds himself to be righteous. But to view yourself in light of the behavior of others, well, that's a much easier case to make when you have so many people to compare yourself to. So that's the audience of the parable. Basically, most of American Christianity. When Luke outlines the audience for whom this parable is meant, some people, listen to me, some people decide it's not meant for them because they've already exonerated themselves from the sin of pride. But I would like to make a brief appeal to your ability to listen to a sermon the way a Christian listens to a sermon. You see, the hardest person in the world to convince is the Pharisee. The most obvious distinction between a Pharisee and a tax collector is their ability to examine themselves with honesty in the light of God's law. That's what's happening in the story. The Pharisee has an inaccurate self-assessment. The tax collector, an accurate one. Now, if you would just let these words from Proverbs sink into your ears, you might come out of this, the tax collector. There is a way which seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. So I appeal to your common sense for you to open your ears this evening with judgment day honesty and let the Bible examine you without the interference of self-flattery. Don't let the prejudice of your self-esteem get in the way of listening to the Bible and examining yourself in sincerity. There is no subject more exposed to the dangers of self-deception than the subject of self-examination. With that said, Look with, me, look with me at our second point. Point number two, the self-examination, I'm sorry, the self-exaltation, the self-exaltation of the Pharisee. We've just considered the audience of the parable. That is, those who trust in themselves for righteousness and viewed others with contempt. Now we will turn to look at the characters of the parable in more detail. Look with me at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. What's a Pharisee? Well, immediately thoughts of hypocrisy or obedience to the law for salvation may come to mind. But I want you instead to think of the Pharisee in the way that Jesus' audience probably thought of the Pharisee. That is, 
with respect. A Pharisee was basically a, a first century pastor. He was intelligent. He was righteous in the eyes of men, a spiritual guide to the people. A first century Jew would think of a Pharisee the same way you or I might think of a pastor. That is, with respect. Jesus' presentation of the sect of the Pharisees was actually a paradigm shift. So that's the way that we should look at it. If you want to see just how serious this paradigm shift was, replace the word Pharisee in the parable with the word pastor. What about the tax collector? Who was the tax collector? Well, as you might have guessed, he's on the opposite side of the spectrum. The Pharisee in the, Lord, in the story lumps him in with the extortioners, unjust, and adulterers. So obviously tax collectors had a pretty bad reputation. Why? What's morally wrong with collecting taxes? Next time you get a letter in the mail for ad valorem taxes, are you going to write back, repent? Maybe. But should you? No. Here's why they had an immoral rep- reputation. Think of Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, he's got a vision of a statue, right? Which represents the kingdoms of this world. First, Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and lastly, the Romans. And if you remember, the Romans were dominating Israel at the time of the first century. These kingdoms, they dominate the, the known world, and they were considered by the Jews, listen, they were considered by the Jews as competing against the kingdom of God, whose kingdom would last forever. These four kingdoms, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans, they were the enemies of God. So, if you were a Jew, how would you feel if your fellow countryman was collecting taxes from you to line the pockets of the enemy of God? Basically, that's why. That's why they had an immoral reputation. So with those characters in mind, they can be summed up as two opposites. One a great reputation, a spiritual leader, someone who teaches the Torah, morally upright. And the other, the dregs of society, lumped in with thieves and adulterers. Jesus then paints a picture of these two men going up into the temple to meet God in prayer. Here comes the Pharisee. Look at verses 11 through 12. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this. God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay a tithe of all that I get. So what's the Pharisee doing? First, he compares himself with others. Then he trusts in himself that he's righteous. Sound familiar? If you want to know who this parable is meant for, look at the Pharisee. The Pharisees are the audience of this parable. How does the Pharisee compare himself with others? Because we said that the two things that he's doing is he's, he's comparing himself with others and he's trusting in himself that he's righteous. So how does the Pharisee do it? How does the Pharisee compare himself with others? He looks at their sin and he says, I don't do that. The Pharisee thinks that he doesn't sin the way they do. Does Jesus agree with that? The Pharisee says, I'm no extortioner. I'm not a thief. But Jesus says, for out of the heart comes theft, and this defiles the man. The Pharisee says, but I'm not an adulterer. I've never committed adultery. But God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if you make a practice of that, your whole body will be thrown into hell. Those are Jesus' words. 
That's what Christ said. A careless practice of heart adultery will put your whole body into the lake of fire. That's Jesus' opinion. It's no piccadillo. So the Pharisees condemned with the tax collector for the sins that he believes himself to be innocent. Do you believe yourself to be innocent of the kind of sin your neighbor commits? It was for heart sin that God flooded the world. And you have done worse than sin in the sphere of your thoughts. Think of the evidence that I've given you from scripture. What does God think about your transgressions? I've shown you from the Old Testament. I've shown you from the New Testament. There is no difference in God's opinion concerning the fact of your moral responsibility. God doesn't change. If you think I'm being serious about sin, ask the one who drowned the entire earth, save eight people. And ask the Messiah who said that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. God takes sin seriously. Now, the Bible is not all condemnation without forgiveness. Both are true. But it's the peculiar temptation of the present age that we're in to temper justice with forgiveness. And it's the one who says, stop all this talk of law and danger and judgment who also says, Jesus is kidding when he tells me to fear the one who will cast both body and soul into hell. Listen to me. There is a place for mercy and forgiveness, yes, but not at the expense of justice. You'll see what I mean. More on that in a minute. The point for now is the same point that Paul made in Romans chapter two. He says this, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So I'll conclude with this. Comparing yourself to the wicked behavior of other people is no safe ground to stand on in judgment. I'll say it again. Comparing yourself to the wicked behavior of other people is no safe ground on judgment day. Now, Not only does the Pharisee compare himself with others and so falsely believe that he's righteous, but the Pharisee also trusts in works of super arrogation. That is, allegedly doing more than God requires. He thinks he does more than God requires. Look at the text. I fast twice a week. I pay a tithe of all that I get. First, the Pharisee claims that he's righteous because he fasts twice a week. Did God require, this is an important question to ask, did God require this in the Old Testament? Does God require this anywhere in the Old Testament? Actually, fasting in the Old Testament was for extraordinary occasions. Nowhere do you find periodic fasting like this even commanded in the Old Testament. It was simply something that the people of Israel did to humble themselves before God. Oftentimes it was, um, it was attended with sackcloth and ashes. The Pharisees did it to be seen by men. Jesus says, whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face like the hypocrites. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by, the men, by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. They did something that God nowhere commanded, thinking that it somehow added to their holiness. Fasting was never meant to do such a thing. What about tithing? The Pharisee says, I pay a tithe of all that I get. What's wrong with that? Doesn't God command tithing? Yes and no. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we have the clearest injunction from the Lord concerning the Old Testament tithe. It was basically an agricultural contribution that was collected every three years and given to the Levite orphan and widow. They produce a crop. That's what I mean when I say it's agricultural. It was an agricultural tithe. They produced a crop and from it, they would give a tenth as a wage for the priest and those in need around them. This is what God commanded. In fact, Jesus doesn't uh, condemn the tithing of the Pharisees per se, but he only condemns their tithing insofar as it was regarded as an excuse to neglect the more important commandments. Here's what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But it was necessary to do these things and not to neglect the others. That is tithing. Also, in Hebrews, the apostle compares Jesus Christ with Melchizedek, right? He says that Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe because he was a high priest. This is what he says. Now observe how great this man Melchizedek was to whom Abraham, the the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Do you see how Melchizedek must be a very great man? Because even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tithe? So, because Jesus is a priest of the same kind as Melchizedek, he must also collect a tenth from his people, right? And listen, I, I think that the scripture warrants me saying this. The one who doesn't tithe believes that Melchizedek was a greater high priest than Jesus Christ. So yes, God requires a tithe from your income, yes. But that's not what the Pharisee is saying. He says, not only do I give tithes for my crop, but I give tithes of everything that I get. Literally, he says, I tithe from everything as much as I acquire. You see the emphasis of the way he says that? I tithe from everything as much as I acquire. He was a gnat strainer and he wasn't about to give a tenth like everybody else. He wasn't just going to give a tithe from his crop, that is his his primary source of revenue, but from everything, from the penny he finds on the ground to the heads of grain he picks on the way to work, all the way down to the smallest herbs of his garden. He tithes from everything. So what's going on here with the Pharisee? He fasts twice a week and he pays tithes from all that he gets. And he believes that he's righteous for it. He thinks he's righteous because he does something that God doesn't require. See how messed up that is? Let me ask you, is there such a thing as a righteous deed that God doesn't command? If so, why not? You better believe that something is righteous if God commands it. In fact, The reason good works are good is precisely because God commands them. If you're going to understand the Pharisee, you need to understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. One of the best quotations on the relationship between the law and the gospel that I could find is in James Buchanan's timeless work, The Doctrine of Justification. I would highly recommend that book. I read it many years ago, and it was very helpful to me in my personal walk and my understanding of justification, that doctrine. Listen to what he says about the reason why people get justification wrong. He says this. It may be safely affirmed that almost all the errors which have prevailed on the subject of justification may be traced ultimately to erroneous or defective views of the law and justice of God. Basically, people get salvation wrong because they don't understand God's just character. 
People either suppose his law to be changeable, so as to admit of being relaxed or modified, as if its uh, perceptive and penal requirements had no necessary connection with the eternal demands of God's justice, or they set aside the law altogether, as if its claims might be superseded by the divine prerogative of mercy, and as if a sinner could be pardoned and accepted without any provision being made for its fulfillment. It is the more necessary to consider justification in its relation to the law and justice of God, because erroneous or defective views on this very point have been the chief source of a false peace and carnal security which prevails so extensively both in the church and in the world. And listen to me, this false peace springs not from faith in the gospel message, but from unbelief in the divine law. Let me give you an example of how getting justice wrong can cause a misunderstanding of salvation. There's an old heresy, lives today still by different names, but back then it went by the name of Sicinianism in the 16th century at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Faustus Socinus denied that in the atonement, Jesus' suffering was a punishment. You hear that? He denied that God was punishing Christ in the place of his church. He said something like this. If God forgives sin then surely there's no need for him to punish it. Indeed, for him to punish sin would render the whole notion of forgiveness entirely equivocal. After all, if an earthly father forgives his child for misbehaving, but then still spanks him after the same transgression, one might well ask if forgiveness means anything at all in such a context. You see the misunderstanding? Heretics say that forgiveness doesn't require punishment. But God says he's the one who forgives transgression and sin, who will by no means acquit the guilty. He both forgives and he doesn't acquit. Misunderstanding God's justice will inevitably lead to a misunderstanding of salvation. Why am I bringing all this out? Because you might think that the Pharisee has a high view of the law. That's a common assessment of the Pharisee, isn't it? My friend, The Pharisee has a low view of the law. He has a high view of himself. His opinion is law. And the standard of righteousness is is himself. How do I know it's righteous? Precisely by what I do. How do I know it's good? By what I think. Do you see how the Pharisee is a type of person that gets salvation wrong because they get the law wrong? The Pharisee acquits himself by subjecting the demands of the law to his own opinion of what is right. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. In contrast, what does Jesus think of the Pharisee as it relates to the law? You can flip to Matthew chapter 23. He says, and, and I want you to see the legal and judicial tone that Jesus has in this condemnation. Notice the very high view of the law that Christ has in his condemnation of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, and look at verse 25. This is what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites, 
For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too appear outwardly righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Down to verse 33. What does he say? You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Those are Christ's words. Men, brethren, I'm telling you, it is not a high view of the law which produces a Pharisee. It is a low view of the law. Which do you have? Do you do what is right in your own eyes? When was the last time that you allowed scripture to change your mind on the way that you should live? When was the last time that you practiced strictly Bible-based self-denial? Or do you only live according to the law of your own opinion? There is a way which seems right to a man. I love you. I love you so much. It may sound harsh. I may sound uncharitable. But I speak this way because if there is a Pharisee among us, a Pharisee in heart, then I am 100% confident that he believes himself to be the publican and others to be the Pharisees. And I love you so much that I am calling to you, wake up and for once in your life, look at the word as that which is speaking to you and not to someone else. Jesus said to the Pharisee, how will you escape the sentence of hell? It won't be through your excusing your sin. It won't be through a relaxation of the demands of the law. It won't be through an act of supererogation. It will not be by hoping in a God who forgets sin, who acquits the guilty, who sets aside his law. How will you escape the sentence of hell? It won't be through outweighing evil deeds by good ones. It won't be through the approval of others. It won't be by the commendation of your own conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it so that to bind your conscience with anything other than the express testimony of scripture is to encroach upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who binds his conscience or the conscience of someone else with anything outside of scripture places himself on the throne of God who alone has authority to make those demands. So how will you, O Pharisee, tell God what is right and wrong? How are you going to tell God what he should and shouldn't punish? How will you escape the sentence of hell for all the ways that you've violated his statutes? Only if God punishes you in Christ by a legal act of his own free will. That is, only if his wrath against you is placated because Jesus took your place. The worthy for the unworthy, the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust. What can you say to recommend yourself to him? Nothing. What plea bargain can you make with the God who is so serious about sin that he even punished Christ for his people's transgressions? And therefore, Because we've established that the Pharisee is unrighteous in the sight of God and nothing can be said in defense of his guilt, we must look to the tax collector for the appropriate response to a guilty and condemned conscience. Point number three, the evangelical humiliation of the tax collector. Remember who the tax collector is? He's someone very sinful, thrown in with a lot of extortioners, unjust and adulterers. Consider with me, That just because you're among a sinful group does not remove your guilt. 
It's a common saying. Some people think that because, some, that because you're not perfect, that therefore you're going to be forgiven. Quite the contrary. As was stated before, the entire earth, the entire earth, earth of millions was flooded for sin. The entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were made ash by fire from heaven. God punished the entire first generation of some 600,000 Israelites and their corpses were laid low in their wilderness for one sin. Paul says that these events were given for our instruction. Jesus said that what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah was a picture of what would happen when he came back in retribution. And John says in Revelation that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, Satan will be released for a short while to deceive the nations at the hand of the Antichrist and gather them together for war against the church. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore, a lot of people, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them all. Likewise, Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the entire earth and all its works will be burned up. Am I not providing you with a panoramic image of New Testament doctrine concerning the impartiality of God at Judgment Day? I'm not reading you an isolated verse ripped out of context, am I? So then, the tax collector is not absolved by the fact that he's a sinner among sinners. He really was a sinful man, and he really was justly deserving of God's righteous condemnation. God would sooner damn the cosmos than relax the standard of one stroke or letter of the moral law. That's the God of the Bible, a just God. But if God is just, what do you do with texts that teach that he loves to forgive? That's where we're headed. That's where I want to get to. But listen to me, the road to the palace of God's forgiveness is not through the gate of injustice. Every sin will be punished, either by damnation or by atonement. Let us look then at the character in this story who can only be seen as a vile sinner deserving of God's wrath justice in need of atoning mercy. What does he do? How does he respond to having his conscience plagued by guilt? Look with me, verse 12. But the tax collector, I don't know what you can say if you can't identify yourself with this. But the tax collector, standing far away, was not even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Briefly notice that we see in the tax collector three external manifestations of an internal disposition. That is, he tells us what's in his heart by what's on his sleeve. The Bible isn't telling us, okay, step one, you need to go far away. Step two, you need to not look into heaven. Step three, you need to beat your breast. What the tax collector is doing is he's revealing what's in here by what he's doing out here. Three external manifestations of an internal disposition. First, he stands far away. The man who sees himself rightly who understands what the law has to say about him, does not feel worthy to approach God. Do you see that in the text? He goes up to the temple to meet God, but he stands far away because he feels unworthy of getting any nearer than he has to be. Second, he's not willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. How can I be so bold as to lift up these eyes, 
these eyes that have beheld sinful things, how can I be so bold as to look up into the presence of the thrice holy God? I cannot. Third, he was beating his breast. And this is not an act of asceticism. He didn't think that he could punish himself and therefore God would no longer be angry with him. Christ doesn't teach that we need to do that. In fact, Paul says that severe treatment of the body has no value against fleshly indulgence. It wasn't in the heart of Jesus to leave any more room for torment. He took it all. No, this wasn't an act of asceticism. This was an external manifestation of an internal disposition. We don't see what he was thinking just by his demeanor, but also by a solemn confession. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see who it is that he goes to? He invocates God's name. He says, God, be merciful to me. This is called invocation. Invocation is when a person calls on God's name. And the name of God is a label that he attaches to himself to communicate something to us about who he is. When you call on God's name, when you invocate, you're trusting in some attribute or perfection in God. That's what he's doing. God, I invocate your name. I call on you alone for my hope. There is no other sufficient ground for my salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which I can be saved other than that of Jesus Christ, my God. God, I call on you, the one who is holy, the one who is just, the one who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I call on you, the one who is immutable, the one who is omnipresent, whose presence fills the heavens and the earth, yet who cannot be contained. You, the God who is incomprehensible, who created everything, who is sovereign over all things, and has all my days written out beforehand, the triune God, the three in one, the one in three, the covenant-keeping God, you are the God that I call upon. And what does the tax collector say next? Be merciful to me. Up until now, I imagine, I can hear it now. Brother, Tyler, you sound like a worm in the dust. Have some self-respect. Show some self-esteem. You need to be confident in yourself. Those are synonyms of pride. And Jesus says that 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 kind of attitude is exactly what will leave you unjustified. But that doesn't mean that a Christian lives a life of self-deprecation and depression. The Christian is not a woe is me kind of person. The Christian life is, not, is certainly not a life of despair. Quite the contrary. The Christian life is a life full of hope and joy and confidence. But these things are found in Christ. My object thus far has been to show you where you have no hope, joy, and confidence. Where they're not supposed to be found. I want you to despair in yourself. I want you to boast in Christ. You see this tax collector? He needs no convincing from me. He knows what he is. The sinner. But does that make him despair? No way. No way. You see how he flies to God for hope? He doesn't run away. He says, well, if hope isn't in me, then I need to run to Christ Yes, yes, you've got it. Run to God. Flee to Christ. Run away from yourself. Divorce yourself from your marriage to your spiritual hubris and be betrothed in sacred matrimony to a hopeful trust in the substitutionary death of Christ. 
There is hope for you. God has provided it in the mediation of Jesus Christ. Lastly, what is the overall message of this parable? Point number four on your notes. The message of the parable. Look with me. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see that word? Justified? That's the ticket. That's what we're after. But what does it mean? You've heard of condemnation, right? Condemnation? That's when you have a judge and a guilty criminal comes before him. The criminal is found to be inexcusably guilty. And what does the judge say? He brings down the gavel and he says, guilty. That's condemnation. The judge doesn't make the criminal guilty. He only declares him to be what he already is. Justification is the opposite. It's when you have a judge and an innocent person comes before him and the judge says, innocent. It's a declaration. The judge doesn't make someone innocent. He proclaims him to be what he already is. You say, but the tax collector wasn't already innocent. So how can the judge say that he is? How can a guilty criminal be considered righteous before the judgment seat of God? God is just. Well, God requires on judgment day, not only for us to be innocent of committing any crime, but also to have some righteousness to earn a reward. So Christ says, this is, these are Jesus' words. Jesus Christ said this, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay. Listen to this language, this very specific judicial legal language. He will then repay every man according to his deeds. He gives to each one according to what he deserves. On the one hand, the evildoer's wage for his sin is hell. On the other hand, God rewards righteousness, good deeds, with eternal glory. So, who will earn that glory for you? Romans 5. Through the obedience of the one, that is, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. If you are righteous, it is because of the obedience of the one. It is actually the obedience of Jesus that earns the reward of our glory that we will receive. I have a right standing with God because of the merits of someone other than myself. And I have a clean slate, an empty criminal record because Jesus suffered in my place. That's how a guilty criminal can be made righteous in the sight of God. We've spoken a lot about the law tonight. It might scare somebody to think. I, we know this kind of person. It might scare somebody to think, well, if I sin even one time, that's enough to damn me forever, right? Because James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. So does that mean after I'm forgiven that I'm going to have to keep the law to sustain my right standing with God? It's a very miserable place to be in. No. No. The point of the gospel is that Christ accomplishes everything, everything in totality that is necessary to secure my eternal redemption. So can I lose salvation? God's serious about sin. You said it, Tyler. What if I do something really bad? What then? Will I fall out of God's favor? No. No. Well, then why should I even try? 
Grace is scandalous if it's free. No, sir. You misunderstand. God's grace, listen to me, God's grace is not only a liberation from the condemnation of the law, but it is a liberation from the dominion of sin. In short, a Christian doesn't fear sinning because he's afraid that God is going to pour out his wrath. A Christian fears sinning because Jesus took that wrath for him. Grace flips the script. The wisdom of God, grace flips the script. A Christian doesn't fear sinning because he's afraid God's going to pour out his wrath. A Christian fears sinning because Jesus took his place. That means that legalism is not the solution to license. Fear of damnation is no stronghold against wayward living. On the other hand, license is not the solution to legalism. And wayward living is not the answer to a fear of damnation. Free pardoning grace that changes the sinner from the inside out is the answer to both legalism and licentiousness. You see how freeing that is? So freeing. It frees me to live a holy life from a motivation of thankfulness and love. And at the same time, it liberates me from the fear of hell when I break his commandments. All the while, knowing that every tax collector the Father gives to Christ will come to him. And the tax collector who comes to him, he will certainly not cast out. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Look again at the verse. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me ask you a question. What do you think? Jesus says, that word exaltation, he says, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He's talking about, he, he, he introduces this subject of exaltation. Is the Christian exalted or glorified in the same way as Jesus or in a different way? You've heard that Jesus was exalted when he was raised from the dead. Philippians said that he was given a name which is above every name. He ascended on high. At his ascension, he's raised to the door of heaven. He says, lift up your heads, O gates, that the king of glory may come in. At the second coming of Christ, Isaiah says, then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. What kind of glory is this? That even the sun and the moon are ashamed at its resplendence. Do we get this exaltation? Yes. Yes. But Jesus is given a name which is above every name. How can you say that I have the same exaltation as him? Because Christ says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We are stamped with the name which is above every name at our conversion. That's why we pray in the name of Christ. Because God can only answer the prayers of someone with the glorious, righteous, exalted name of Jesus Christ. Who said that Christianity was a despondent thing? Forgiveness of sins, completely free absolution, the Holy Spirit who gives us life and freedom from the power and dominion of the flesh, union with Christ, the glory of the exalted Messiah, liberty from a plagued conscience, unstained hands. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. It's no wonder that Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly with rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
How can I express with my tongue the heavenliness of the matter? How can I translate the joy in my heart into words of gratitude worthy of such an unfathomable gift of undeserved kindness? How can I explain to someone the incomparable excellencies of God's promises over and against the passing pleasures of the world? What can I say to do justice to the immeasurable and incomprehensible glories of eternal redemption and communion with the triune God that have been given to me for free without the slightest chance of being revoked? No words can do it. Christ freely gives his bride a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Himself, he is the joy. Do you want to be justified before the throne of God? Don't trust in your own righteousness. Trust in Christ's obedience instead. Trust that he took your place being judged because of what you have done. Do you want to be exalted on the last day? Evangelical humiliation, gospel humility, is the road to the glorious palace of Christ's sufficient work. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Oh God, how can we return your grace with words that adequately express the immeasurable value of the atoning work of your son? We cannot give words of thanks that are commensurate with this great gift that you have given us, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. And we pray, oh God, we ask in the name of your son, we pray that you would edify the saints with the gospel, continue to work in them, remind them of the the solution to legalism, that it is not licentiousness. Remind them of the solution to licentiousness, that it is not legalism, but it is gospel holiness wrought in the heart of the sinner by pardoning efficacious grace. Please remind us of these truths and please cause us to grow in conformity with the image of your son for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.